Now you can go ahead and find Romans chapter 13. We're going to be spending our time in verses 1 through 7 this morning. And as you find uh, chapter 13, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story that perhaps sets up some of what we will be talking about today. When Abby and I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, while I was going to seminary, uh, we served in the English as a Second Language program in the church that we were a part of. And uh, several of our students were refugees from other countries, and so they were coming to uh, the U.S. They were, they were placed in Louisville as a place of safety. And one of the things that we did was not only teach English as a second language to people who are not uh, native English speakers, but uh, we also had a, a group there, not myself, but that helped people get certified to become U.S. citizens. And that was a very uh, costly process. It was uh, a very um, long certification process, but through a series of teaching and then written exams and oral exams, you could become a citizen of the United States. Now, here's why I say that, because whenever someone went through that process, they gained dual citizenship. And according to the Supreme Court, whenever you have dual citizenship, it doesn't mean that you forsake all of the responsibilities that came along with your native citizenship. But now, you now have responsibilities and obligations to, this, to, the, to the two countries that you are a citizen of. Now, I bring that up not to pique your interest about dual citizenship, but rather because there are great parallels for us in the Christian life. Because what does Paul say in Philippians 3.20 to the church? He says, your citizenship is in heaven, from which you await the coming of our Savior, His return, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as the Christian you have to wrestle with living out the dual citizenship of being a citizen in the country that God has placed you in, and yet ultimately living under the loving rule of Jesus Christ. So what does it look like for us to simultaneously honor the government that God has placed us within as a citizen of this nation, and also to obey God in a way that shows our ultimate allegiance is to Him because He has authority over it all. Well, we will be looking at Romans 13 as we seek to answer that question. You could say it something like this, that our submission to Jesus as Lord guides our civic responsibility and respect for the government. That our submission to Jesus as Lord guides our civic responsibility, and our respect for the government that God has put in place. Now, why is Paul tackling this subject that perhaps you walked in this morning and you're thinking, this isn't really something I've been wrestling with this week, right? Like, I, I wasn't necessarily hoping like, you know, God, please let the sermon this morning just be about the government because I, I really need that, right? But what is Paul doing? Well, at Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, there was a pivotal shift in the book of Romans where Paul says, because of the mercies of God, I am appealing to you to do what? To present your body as a living sacrifice, uh, to, to discern what is spiritual worship and then to carry that out, to both discover and do God's will. 
And those concepts, yes, every Christian would say, I, I wholly need to devote my life to those things. But doing that well, to go from the general to the concrete, to discover what that means tangibly, Paul has to give us application and examples. Picture Romans 12, 1 through 2, like this giant filing cabinet in, in an office. Verses 1 through 2 are right there, and then each drawer that's in that filing cabinet is, is a different chapter in the rest of this book, chapters 13 through 16. And so here he's going to pull out that, that filing cabinet that is, how do we relate to the larger world? He's talked thus far through chapter 12 about how do we relate to one another in using the gifts to serve one another? How do we love one another well within the church body? Then he says, okay, let's look kind of outside the walls. How do we handle different things uh, with non-believers? And now he's going to zoom out, if you will, and say, how, how does the Christian relate to the government at large? And so that's the context of this passage. That's what Paul is doing as he's continuing to speak to this church in Rome through the letter that he has written. With that being said, let's look at Romans 13. We'll read verses 1 through 7. God's Word says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Today I want to look at three duties of our dual citizenship. The first of those duties is to honor the government as an extension of God's authority. That's what we've just read in verse 1, right? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So we should acknowledge the government that God has put in place while giving our ultimate allegiance to the Lord who is our authority and who grants authority, a derivative, a delegated authority to those that are in positions of power. Now, here's what you, you won't find in this passage. You will not find Paul's nuanced, divinely inspired answer to all of the questions that you might have in this passage. But here's what you will find, and I, I, I believe that you will find that Paul is guarding between two extreme viewpoints whenever it comes to our view of the government. Uh, some people might say, well, Christ is king over my heart. He is seated on his throne, and because my allegiance is to Christ alone, I don't have to abide by the government, right? I answer to the Lord alone. I know that he is ultimately judge over me, so I'm just going to disregard the government as a whole. Well, what Paul is going to say is, 
That is ultimately to disregard the, the sovereign will of God in ordaining those that are, that are in governmental positions of power. That's a sinful way to think. You are to live within the limits of the government that God has granted to rule. But then, but then the other hand might be that government is everything. Instead of simply viewing, as, viewing government as a good thing that God has decreed, a structure that God has designed and set in place, you view it as a god. And so, unless your political party is in power or unless your candidate is the one that is calling all the shots, you feel like the world is unraveling. And so, Paul is going to say, hey, you, you shouldn't completely disregard the government. There is a way to live righteously under the, the rule of others. And at the same time, you shouldn't have all of your hope wrapped up in who holds a position in your country. So, I believe that he gives us a very balanced view for how we honor God with our view of the government. Here's how you could sum up what is expressed in verses 1 through 7, and this might be a helpful way just to view this, that you as a Christian can trust God's sovereignty by honoring the authority of the government and obeying the laws of the land when they do not contradict God's commands. If you're looking for a statement that you're just kind of like, okay, how, how, do I, how do I summarize everything that is here? It would be this, that you can trust God's sovereignty. This is ultimately has to do with your view of God by honor the, honoring the authority of the government and obeying the laws of the land when they do not contradict God's commands. Now, I can anticipate the pushback here. What if the leaders in the land are ungodly? Uh, what, if, what if they're not operating from a Christian worldview? What do you do then? Well, let's admit that that scenario, for most pa- places, for most times, for most people, that that scenario is exactly what will be the case. Consider Paul's audience here. Who is he writing to? He's writing to the church in Rome under the pagan rule of Nero. And and although the persecution that would take place under his reign had not reached its full extent, we have to be aware that this was not a favorable time for Christians, and yet Paul is giving them this command to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, imagine for a moment that you're a part of this church in Rome, right? And uh, there you are, you're in the first century, and there's an older gentleman in the congregation uh, let's say he's in his 60s, and, you know, you have a gathering in one of your church members' homes, and then afterwards you're, you're eating lunch, and you just ask him, hey, what, what's it been like growing up in Rome? What has the landscape of, of politics been in regard to Christianity and the rise of this new faith that, as the book of Acts says, has turned the world upside down? I think he would maybe breathe in deeply and, and point to some key historical events that kind of define the political landscape in regards to Christianity. You see, this man, this fictional man that we have just created, would have lived under the rule of Claudius and now under the rule of Nero. And what has taken place? Well, during the days of the emperor Claudius, uh, there was this dispute that broke out 
over a man named Crestus. Well, who is that? It's a reference to Christ. Uh, those in power, those who were uh, taking account of history said something took place among the Jews. This rapid rise over this discussion of a man that was, was called Crestus, he was referred to as the Christ. They said that he had risen from the dead, and man, Caesar catches wind of this and, and hears that there is some other man that is competing for his power. There's, there's someone else that the Jews are beginning to call king, and even the Gentiles are, are starting to believe that this, this man has ultimate allegiance. They're saying that he rose from the dead. Claudius says, not in my kingdom. No one will compete for my power. And so what does he do in 49 AD? He exiles the Jews completely from Rome. And there's scriptural alignment because in Acts 18, what do we read? That Paul meets two people, two Christians that were exiled from Rome, Priscilla and Aquila. And they were exiled under the reign of Claudius because of this dispute that had broken out over Christianity. Now, that, sh that shows just how volatile things would have been in regards to any other power or any other belief system that would have kind of disrupted the, the status quo of allegiance to Caesar, allegiance to the government. I think it also adds to our understanding of the book of Romans, doesn't it? Because about 10 years later, those Jews were allowed to come back in. And so the church began primarily with uh, those who were from a Jewish background who had become Christians. And then what happens? Well, all the, Christian, or all the Jewish Christians are then taken out of the church. The Gentile Christians then begin assuming positions of leadership. A decade later, those, those Jewish Christians are then able to come back in, come back into their homes, come back into the church that they were a part of planting. And now there's, there's some tension, isn't there? We're going to, in, in two weeks, whenever we go through Romans 14, we're going to handle some of the issues of conscience. That kind of plays into what is happening there. And so, so there's, some, there's some tension within the church. There's political opposition on the outside of the church. Those Christians that come from a background of being like a Jewish zealot, they would have, have practiced opposition toward Caesar by trying to refuse to pay taxes. Caesar is equating himself as a deity. He's claiming that he is a god. So if you obey the laws of the land, is that somehow committing idolatry at the same time? I mean, both Jew and Gentile Christian were often viewed as scapegoats for things that took place. And, and while they want to proclaim that Jesus has their ultimate allegiance, that he is king over their life, regardless of who is Caesar, they recognize that because they want the gospel to spread and because they want to be obedient to what Christ taught in the gospels and what Paul is teaching here, that they shouldn't be unnecessarily opposed to the government, right? So, so there's a lot going on. I mean, if you consider the context in which Paul is writing, this isn't an easy discussion to have. This isn't a hypothetical issue for Paul to bring up. This was, this was something that probably would have caused the, the Christian in the church of Rome to sit on the edge of their seat to understand how to navigate such a, a dangerous and volatile situation that they were in. 
And yet, what does Paul say in verse 1? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He gives this command in no uncertain terms, doesn't he? Many commentators would say that the way that this is worded is almost as if Paul is saying, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, as if he's not even distinguishing between Christians and non-Christians, but to just say this is the duty of every single person that lives under God's rule, to recognize government as an extension of God's authority. This is a God-given obligation for every citizen. This isn't a liberal or conservative view. He's not making exceptions for which political party is in power. He's saying every person be subject to those that God has put in place. Now, why do we bristle against a command like this? I think at large because we don't like authority, do we? We can admit that, right? Typically, we don't like authority. We don't like being told what to do. We often second-guess rules, or maybe we try to look for loopholes, or if there's a way that perhaps there is an authority that we don't want to abide by, we, we try to justify our actions. Why is that? It's because our natural tendency is the desire to be our own governing authority. And this story is as old as the Garden of Eden, because what do we see there? That Adam and Eve had one ruler, God himself. They had one governing authority, one who governs with complete goodness and care for those that are under his rule. And what do we find? That even with God as the good ruler of Adam and Eve, that they rebelled against God, the source of good, the intelligent designer of human flourishing. And on that day, sin entered the world and corrupted humanity. Now we all inherit this same sinful desire to be our own authority and to disregard the authority of God. You can see this in the two-year-old, right, that folds their arms whenever the, the mom or dad says, pick up your toys. You can see this disdain for authority even within how people around your workplace speak about people that are in management positions. Why is it that we don't like authority? Let me ask more pointedly, how do you respond to authority? Children, do you obey your parents? Students, Do you complete your assignments at school showing respect and honor to the professors or those in administrative positions? Do you complete your assignments without cheating or without using chat GPT to write a paper? Employees, do you honor those that are in leadership positions within your workplace by working as unto God? Or do you practice what is so common in our culture? just quietly quitting, just doing the status quo to maintain your job and to get by. Neighbors, do you make peace with the HOA? Parents, do you, do you argue with the ref at your child's t-ball game? Those playing fantasy football, do you argue with the commissioner of your fantasy football league? No, right, I'm just, I'm just meddling at, at this point, right? 
But why do I ask you those questions? Because I think that your view of authority, even in seemingly mundane aspects of life, are symptomatic of how you view authority, of how you view the authority of God. You see, if if we're not careful, the rampant individualism that so characterizes our day can distort our view of God's authority. And why do I say that? Because we are all prone to the delusion of self-supremacy, right? We, We place ourselves above those in authority. We place ourselves even at times as arbiters of authority over the authority of God's Word. And what does 2 Timothy 3.16 tell us? That all Scripture is breathed out by God for us to submit to it. That you and I were designed to be governed by God. And how does that take place? Through adherence to His Word. Through even adhering to passages like Romans 13, 1-7. Is God's Word the ultimate source of authority over your life? Do you approach Scripture, listening to sermons, having conversations with Christian friends, do you approach those situations with the humble posture that where your will and God's Word collide, you will always give way to what God desires? Do you approach your devotional time like that? Do you desire accountability? I think it's really common in in our day and age to bounce around from churches or to just pursue surface-level relationships, even in a church that we're a part of, because we don't want somebody holding us accountable. We don't want pastors to say, brother, sister, what's going on in your life? We don't want we don't want the Christian friend to see, say, hey, hey, I've noticed this, and I don't think that this is helpful or healthy for you. Uh, we must consider our attitude toward the authorities that God has placed around us and see that ultimately He is sovereign over it for both our good and His glory. And it should be enough for us to obey these commands simply because they are God's Word, right? To be subject to those that God has placed in authority. But God anticipates that the, the church of Rome, as well as you and I, would, would have questions. You say, God, why should we do this? And, and He doesn't point to the fitness of the leader that is in place. He doesn't point to uh, certain actions that characterize the person in power. No, He points to who God is. He says, let every person, in verse 1, be subject to the governing authorities, for because there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There is no authority except from God. And yet God grants authority to those in in certain positions. Uh, We see this this even in Genesis 128, because what does God say to Adam and Eve? that they have dominion over every living thing. So the authority that uh, you might have as a manager in the workplace or the owner of a company or the principal of a school or the teacher in a classroom, that is delegated authority that God has granted you as a steward to use well. Our authority as human beings is not intrinsic to our nature. It is delegated by God. Parents, 
Mothers, fathers, you have a delegated authority that God has given you to steward well so that the dominion that you exercise even in your home would be for the discipleship and good of the children that are placed within your care. All authority is from God. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is true of every person in a position of power, that they are there instituted by God. Paul is teaching here that God's sovereignty and God's providence govern the government. And because God is sovereign over it all, we can place our trust in Him. Uh, maybe, maybe you are seeing news headlines right now, and you're thinking, well, what if the government shuts down? What if inflation continues to grow? You go to the grocery store, and you spend $100 on groceries, and you come home with three bags, and you're thinking, what is going on here? What's going on with the economy? What happens if a recession is to come in the years ahead? And, and whenever those, those ideas begin to swirl in our head, we can, we can begin to feel closed in. And yet, what does this passage remind us? That God's sovereignty and His providence govern the government. This is not catching Him off guard. There's nothing that catches God off guard because all authority is from Him. And every person that has been instituted into a position of power is ultimately there as a part of God's plan. Yesterday, uh, our family went to Blooms and Berries. It's the pumpkin patch that is in Loveland. And we had a really good time. One of, one of our favorite things to do there is the corn maze. And so, uh, you know, we went through the kitty corn maze, and it took us like 30 minutes, and we all loved it. Um, here's the problem. We got overconfident, and we were like, oh, yeah, the four of us, including a six-year-old and a three-year-old, we can definitely handle the adult corn maze, which is like seven times the size of the kitty corn maze. And, uh, and so we get our little paper and uh, scan the QR code before you go in. And we get in there, and we are just as lost as you can be. And you're looking at, you know, the same stalks of corn that looked like the other stalks of corn that you just saw 30 seconds ago. And you're like, I'm pretty sure we've done this loop 10 times. And uh, well, what, we, what we realized is that the QR code that you scan whenever you go in is actually a map of the entire maze from a bird's eye view. And it uses your GPS to show you where you are at inside of that maze, which is kind of like cheating when it comes to corn mazes, I understand. Uh, don't worry, we still didn't complete the corn maze, so there's like no pride there. Uh, it, the GPS was not accurate enough. But, but here's what I was thinking in regards to acknowledging God's position of providence, power, sovereignty, and our experience with what we see day to day, even in in relation to government and what happens on an economic scale, that, that hearing a passage like this, resting in a truth like this might not change our position, but it does change our perspective, right? So, so we might feel like we're in the thick of the maze, corn stalks all around us, not really sure where to go. And yet, whenever we come to God's Word, it gives us the, the giant view that ultimately points us to the, to the day that Christ returns and makes all things new. And so, we're able to rest in God's good design, to trust Him in the midst of what might feel like trouble. And as the Puritans often said, that when we can't trace God's hand, we can trust His heart. And that principle transcends even what takes place on the level of the government. 
but applies to every aspect of our lives, which leads us to our second duty, that we can trust God with the governing authorities that He has appointed. We can trust God with the governing authorities that He has appointed. There is a phrase that each one of us has said more times than we can count if you grew up in a school that said the Pledge of Allegiance every single morning, that we are one nation under God. And whether everyone in our country would agree to that statement or not, it is true. It is a biblical truth that we are one nation under God. To add to that, every nation is under God because God sovereignly rules over all creation. Every aspect of the universe is under God. Is that not what we see in verse 2? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. God has appointed all things, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Let's stop right there. Verse 2 makes such a connection between uh, God's providential government of authority and the human government that He has put in place that He says, whoever resists the authorities in the land resists what God has appointed. Now, what could God's purposes be in what He has appointed? Now, I don't want to drift too far into speculation here. But perhaps this is a helpful exercise just to acknowledge God's goodness in all different types of government. One of the purposes, perhaps, that God has in government is that the government often protects God's people. I mean, think about that. We have the right to gather in this very public place this morning, and we're able to do that because of the structures that God has placed within our country. We pray for our brothers and sisters in places where they do not have that right. And at the same time, we praise God that you and I do. We see this throughout Paul's life as well. He's speaking of personal experience when he writes these words, because in Acts 16, what happens? It is right after the story of the Philippian jailer takes place, and he appeals to his citizenship as one who is a citizen of Rome, and then he is set free. They say, wait, well, you know what? We're, we're not going to make you go back and be imprisoned again. We didn't recognize you're a Roman citizen. It's for his protection. Uh, later in Acts 18, there's this riot that begins, and people are about to seize Paul. And Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, silences the riot, and Paul is protected there are times that that happens. Oh, what, what do you do whenever the government is in opposition to the people of God? What do, you, what do you do whenever the government is demanding things that are just outright sinful? What could God's purposes be in a system like that? Well, government can also be a means of purifying and growing perseverance in God's people. Consider Egypt where Moses and the Israelites were. And yet God used the hard-heartedness of Egypt to ultimately call His people out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. 
Peter wrote to this same group of people that Paul is writing to. And, and he is going to say in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, Church, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory for Jesus. You see, an ungodly government can accomplish God's purposes by removing the dross of our faith to grow us in perseverance, to produce patience and a desire for godliness, and to purify God's people. What we know from our brothers and sisters that are living in persecuted places where they do not share the same kind of freedom that we do now is that the gospel cannot be stopped by the government, that it is unthwarted by the authority of man, and that God will always accomplish his purposes. And the final purpose that God can accomplish that we'll talk through now is that the government can make people aware of the consequences of their sin. What does Paul say here in, in verse 2? That those who resist the government will incur judgment. Why is that? Well, because we are all created in God's image. And because we are created in God's image, there is a baseline of morality that God has coded into every single person that bears His image. This intrinsic baseline of morality is reflected in many of the laws of the government. Most crimes are also sins. So whenever a person commits theft, murder, fraud, whenever they do something that harms someone else, they are dually guilty. They're guilty before God who is judge, and they're also guilty in the court of law. And yet, it is a great means of grace to experience the consequence of our sin here and now through governmental systems, through realizing the outcome of our sins, through punishment in the court of law, so that perhaps it wakes us up to realize that our sin always brings about judgment. And it is better to realize that here, standing before a human judge, than to realize that on the day of Christ's return when you stand before the Lord God Almighty. Perhaps God has used that in your life to wake you up. Say, I don't know what I was doing. I don't know why I was acting like that. But praise God, I saw the consequence of my sin through the hands of human government before I gave an account of my life to God. I say that because... Whenever I, I first uh, felt like God was calling me to preach, I uh, looked for any opportunity that I could to preach anywhere that I could. And uh, my first few years of seminary, there was a, um, a state prison about 30 miles north of where our church was. And I spent most Saturday mornings of the four years I was in seminary preaching at Rotorer Correctional Complex. And uh, I, would, I would preach through James and John, and it was, it, was such a, it was such a good experience for me to be able to, to get to know these guys. And what I loved about preaching in that context, in a prison setting, is that no one is trying to pretend like they have it all together, right? I mean, honestly, no, nobody, is, nobody is trying to pretend like they are morally flawless, because the cinder block on the walls, the tan jumpsuit that everybody is wearing, the limited amount of freedom that you have, 
is a constant reminder that every person in that room, myself included, is a sinner in need of saving. And by God's grace, he used the, the governmental law and the consequences of that to bring about a genuine humility that led to repentance. And many of those guys gave their life to the Lord. You see, if we were to see ourselves exposed, we would recognize that our guilt is not just against the laws that we may or may not abide by in our land, but our guilt is ultimately against God. Just why Paul is going to say here that if you live within the line of what the law demands, that, that typically you won't experience consequences for it. But, but if you break the law of the land, you incur the judgment of God through the authorities. And this is one of the ways that God sovereignly encourages people to obey His commands. So we can trust God's plans, His purposes, and what He has appointed. Now, while the government might not always be godly, we do recognize that it is often a good thing. If you look at the logic of verses 3 through 4, Paul is saying that rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He's saying as a general rule, if you obey the laws of the land, then, then you will not experience consequences from those in, in government power. He says, but recognize they don't bear the sword in vain, right? That if you, if you break the laws of the land, then you will experience judgment at the hand of those that God has placed in power. Now, <clears throat> there are exceptions to this, right? We would say, well, uh, those that are in an Islamic context might be persecuted for their faith, and that's a part of their government. Or uh, those that are living in communist China aren't even allowed to teach their children about Christ if they themselves are Christians. Uh, we would look at injustice that has occurred because of racism or, you know, different things like that throughout our time, and we would say, okay, we have to understand Paul is writing within the context of this Roman government and within this framework. And so we can nuance this, but generally, as a typical rule, if you abide by the laws of the land, of the land you will not incur judgment. Paul goes so far in verse 4 as to even call those that are in power as God's servant for your good. Now, he's not saying that they will always live in a righteous way, but they are simply carrying out the purposes of God, and in that way, they are God's servant. In verse 5, he tells us, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid, avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Uh, being in subjection here is more like being submissive to than to be subjugated to. Uh, subjugation is this conformity without objection, right? Whereas submission is compliance that is in accordance to obedience to God. There are three institutions that God has 
placed within human society. It's the institution of the church, the institution of the home, and the institution of government. Uh, these are also three institutions where submission is a part of obeying God's command. So in the church, people that are within the church, they submit to God's Word, and they submit to the elders and pastors of that church as they carry out God's Word. Within the home, wives are called to submit to their husbands as He leads like Christ leads the church. Children submit to mother and father. Within the government, we submit to the leaders that God has put in place. But, but hear me out. That submission is not subjugation. Because at the point in which submitting to whoever God has placed in authority is in opposition to obedience to God, then submission is no longer required because to do so would be synonymous with sin. Does that make sense? So, if you're, if you're a part of the church and the pastor is leading in a way that is ungodly and teaching heresy, then you don't say, well, I'm, I'm called to submit to my leaders as 1 Peter 5 says, so I'm just going to submit. No, you don't do that, right? If, if you are a child living in the home of a uh, father or mother and they are, they're leading in a way that is harmful to you, sinful for you, then, then you would say, I'm, I'm not going to submit here. And so, so you, you understand that we are to be subject to the government as far as we are obedient to Christ. And Paul adds that this is not just a matter of avoiding God's wrath, but also for the sake of our conscience. <clears throat> I think his reference to our conscience is important here because obedience to God is not merely a matter of external conformity, but of internal conviction. You see, whenever God talks about the conscience that the Christian has, He's after your heart. What did Jesus say of the Pharisees in Matthew 22? That you are like whitewashed tombs, right? You look great on the inside, but, or outside, but inside you're full of rotten bones. The Christian life is not simply one of seeing moral values and and, and desiring to conform, but rather to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and to have a desire from the heart to obey what God desires. And this leads to our third and final duty, to fulfill your obligation to the government, but give your entire life to God. In verses 6 through 7, Paul gives concrete examples. He says, for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. He's after both our actions and our attitudes in this command. Pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, also pay respect to whom respect is owed. So I know not every person in this room is going to vote for the same person next year. But we are commanded to not slander, to not quarrel. And so you can make your position known in a godly way. You can have a discussion without it creating division. We seek to pay the taxes because that is what we are called to do under this government, but also to give honor and respect to whom it is owed. Now, the unavoidable question with a topic like this is, what do we do whenever the government just directly opposes God's rule? And I think perhaps there is no better book 
to find example than the book of Daniel. We see Daniel living like this. I think one of the greatest examples is even in Daniel 3, whenever you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get the command from King Nebuchadnezzar that he has created this golden image of himself that every person must bow down to. And what do they do? When the whole nation bows, they stand fast. And what happens? They say, we will bow to no other God but the Lord alone. And when, when they do that, Nebuchadnezzar, he punishes them. He brings down the weight of the law on them, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And what happens? They receive the consequence for defying the government, and at the same time, they are also preserved by God and become a witness for the power of God to King Nebuchadnezzar and the rest of the nation. So what do we do? We, we seek to honor God over man. Look at the life of Joseph. He was a man who was a part of Pharaoh's rule. And, and although Pharaoh didn't acknowledge the, the one true God as Lord, Joseph faithfully served in that position, and the position that God granted him led to the flourishing of those under his care. What about a, a New Testament example? In Acts 5, the priests and the officers in power strictly demanded that Peter and the other apostles not preach the name of Jesus Christ anymore. And what did they say in Acts 5, 29? We must obey God rather than man. Why? Because we submit to Christ as our king because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. You see, Paul's teaching here about the government correlates with what Jesus taught in Mark 13. You might remember the story where some of Jesus' opponents sought to trap him. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now here's the basic logic of Jesus' response. The coin that they held bore the image of Caesar's. And so he said, well, give to Caesar. What is it, Caesar? It bears his image. It acknowledges his rule over this land, and you are living under it. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he ends his statement by saying, render to God what is God's. Give to God what is God's. And if the coin that bears Caesar's image should be given wholly to him, then the person that bears God's image should be completely given to him. To render to God's what is God's is to recognize that you were created in the image of God and you belong to Him. You see, becoming a citizen of God's kingdom doesn't come through a process of certification, but is a matter of salvation that is only made available through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what does it look like for you to render to God's what is God's? First, you repent. You repent of living like you are the ruler of your life. You submit to the rule of Christ. <clears throat> you see, Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind of king that was common in Paul's day. Why is that? Because his path to throne, to the throne was one of servitude and suffering. His crown was not one that was made of rubies and gold, but instead was woven from the thorns that were a result 
of the sin that entered the world. His coronation was synonymous with his crucifixion, and perhaps it seemed like his reign would be cut short by his death. But he was resurrected three days later to prove that he could offer life to anyone who would believe in him. He hung beneath a sign on the cross that said, Hail the King of the Jews, written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, to show that anyone who could read that sign and call upon his name could acknowledge him as king and be welcomed into his kingdom. And right now, Christ reigns in the heart of every person that he has called his own. He reigns in the church. He reigns over the entire universe. And one day, the clouds will be rolled back, and his reign and rule will be fully realized throughout the entire universe. And you will stand before this king. And you will acknowledge that he is judge, yes, but also your savior and friend. Or you will acknowledge that your guilt remains on you. Would you repent and submit to Christ as ruler and king who died for your sins and rose to save you from them? Would you realize that your best life is lived within the rule of Christ to understand his word that you might submit to the authority of it? Would you submit to the authority that God has placed over you within his word, within the government, within the institutions that he has established? And would you be an ambassador for his kingdom? 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors. It is as if every local church is an embassy within this land to represent Christ's rule and to make him known. We are those who pray fervently, may Christ's kingdom come, may his will be done on earth right now as it currently is in heaven. Let's pray.